I've never been in a situation where I'm like, I'm in a lot of pain or I'm a little cold. I want to get out and then actually going up, actually getting out because I'm uncomfortable. I've never got out because I'm uncomfortable. I've only got out because I thought I might potentially die before I finish this lap. And that's not helping anyone. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Success Times Happiness Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Thompson. Today, we have Chloe McArdle. Chloe is arguably one of the greatest endurance athletes of all time. She has swum across the English Channel more times than any other human in the world. She's an incredible athlete, an incredible human, and has a wonderful story. So I hope you really enjoy. Here we go. Chloe (laughs) McArdle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Now, for those who don't know, I would classify you as one of the greatest endurance athletes on the planet. And oh. I would classify you as, well, you say you're the, the channel, the, the dub is the channel queen. As an English channel, you're an endurance swimmer. But you're the, you're the, it wouldn't be just queen because you've, you've crossed that more times than any other person on the planet that's ever been, 44 times. How does that sit with you now? You're a little bit away from doing that again. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think my life's moved very quickly since that date and I haven't really spent much time reflecting on it. When I was in my English Channel Swimming career, I always felt like I had such a strong connection to the channel that they, I did have a very special and unique connection. And when I got to about 10, 15 crossings of the channel, I felt like I was maybe not officially the queen of the channel, but I was at least the princess. <laughs> but I would never say that to anyone because mm. it would seem very presumptuous, especially in England because they can be quite harsh over there and like to bring people down a few pegs. So I knew in the future I'd go after that goal so in my head, I've been the queen of the channel for many years, <laughs> but three, just, four, five years. But just now it's, uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's unequivocal. What drew you to that particular event initially? Well, I was a competitive swimmer at high school. Wasn't good enough to even imagine qualifying for the Olympics and I needed a goal. So a few years later, after moving away from sport, not by my choice, I decided I wanted to be the best in the world at something being 19 years of age, I'd, I felt limited options at that time to try and pick up something, anything, to achieve this goal. I knew I had a background in swimming. I tried elite triathlon for a few years. It was terrible at the elite level. Ran a marathon, swam a marathon. The running marathon was great, did three hours 37. The swimming marathon was even better and had this amazing spiritual connection to the water as well as that competitive side or first female of the line, only one man ahead. And I just thought, this is it. I have, this will be the sport where I can dominate. And the English Channel is renowned as being the mecca, the highest bar that you can set for distance swimming. And I felt that distance swimming was where I could find my niche. So I decided to go and smash that. There were already dozens of Australians who'd done single crossings and only one Aussie that done a double. So I was like, I'm going to go over there, do a double. If things go well in the future, I'll do a triple crossing. At that point, I was no intention of swimming 44 laps of the channel, mm. but I just wanted to—I wanted to dominate something. I wanted to be the best in the world at something, and I um, took a few different pathways along the way. But eventually, I, I nailed that channel swimming. Why do you think, as a young uh, adult, you had that drive to want to be the best in the world at something? I think. It comes back to my teenage years where I was in a competitive squad where I saw people go off and compete for Australia at the Olympics. And I was doing the same number of sessions a week as them. I had the same coach. I had the same access to training resources. There was no real difference. And my commitment to training was the same as them. I couldn't see much difference between my position and their position, except that they seemed to have some sort of talent that I didn't have in this particular sport. And I worked hard and I pushed myself as hard as I could. There's no way I could have pushed myself physically any harder. Mm. And I thought I I really have the potential to achieve something great with my life, but it's not going to be pool swimming because it's just not where my talent lies. 
And I know some people say that if you work hard enough and you put your mind to it and you have the great people around, you can achieve literally anything you want in your life. And I don't believe that. I do believe talent does play an element in it. But I do think that people can be the best in the world at at least one thing. But they may not know what that is initially. It may take time to figure that out. And I needed that time. I needed to experiment with different sports to figure out what was going to suit my talents the best. And basically, marathon swimming is like a, a mind fuck. So I could endure more pain and suffering and sacrifice over a long period than anyone else. And that's how I got there. Not because I'm talented at swimming so much, but I'll stick it out where other people, they don't want to. Um, so the talent's really the mindset. It's not, it's not the physical talent. Yeah, I get that. And so for people that don't know, the English Channel, point to point in this, the shortest distance, 35 kilometres? 34. 34 kilometres. And how, on average, what are you assuming on any particular crossing across the 44 you've done? It's a little bit more than that because of the tides? Uh, so yes and no. You're still swimming point to point. Yeah. And the tides are cross tides. So they're pushing you up or down the channel and you're pushing against them. So if anyone uh, listening to this has seen a, a GPS track of a channel swimmer, you'll see they do kind of like an S shape on the side, like a squiggle. But that doesn't mean they're swimming further. It means they've covered further distance from the push and the pull of the tides. So in real terms, you can't compare swimming, say, 45 kilometres in neutral water to swimming 45 kilometres in the English Channel because the difference between the 34 and the 45 in the channel is just a tide pushing you around. Right. It's not actually that... Distance. Real. It's not a real distance, extra swum. Okay. And what average, on average, what is what are we looking at for one crossing in terms of time? For me, over the 44, it was 10 and a half hours. Okay. In 15 degree water... With no wetsuit? No wetsuit. And it varied the water temperature over the season and okay. some months are different in different years. So it's varied between 12.9 and 18.9. Okay. And we'll get into your attempt to do three in a row, but wind shield factor had to, plays, a, plays an enormous part. Yeah, and that's something people don't think about. For example, at night, hmm. much colder. I mean, the air temperature is colder in and of itself, but, you know, you've got that wind wind chill. Um, hypothermia. That's one thing that plays into hypothermia, which for a lot of people is a bigger struggle. That's yeah. the reason why they pull out, because of the cold? Hypothermia and the mental challenge of it and the physical exhaustion sure. would be the three things, I would say. Why, if it's only 10 hours, let's say, why would you, just for the listener's sake, why would you not always do that during the day? Or is it always attempted during the day or is it just conditions dependent? So the English channel is, is very unique in that you don't even know your start day in advance. You have a window, you go over, you have a booking with an English channel boat captain who runs his own boat and it's like a 10-day, usually a 10-day window. You don't know what day you're going to swim and you don't know what time of the day or night you're even going to start your swim. So there's a few reasons for this. A, you don't know what the weather's going to do in advance. B, the tide is very strong, changes directions every six hours. So on different days, the tide is moving at different times of the day in different directions. So first of all, you've got to figure out when the wind's going to drop down and then you've got to go usually on high tide or an hour before or after high tide, but high tide changes every day. So usually boat captains want you to start between, say, midnight and 5am in the morning. They want you to start in the dark and the cold to get that horrible bit of channel swimming. I mean, it's all a bit horrible, but at least get that out, out of the way early mm. while you're fresh and you're in usually better spirits mm -hmm. and then get to the mid and the end of your swim. It's daylight, there's more sun, the air temperature's warmer. And if you are a bit tired and delirious, at least you've got good visibility because there's sun out. You can see if you're going to swim into huge boulders. It's a lot of rocks usually on, on the other end. Uh, and if you're hypothermic at the end, which a lot of people are, at least if there's sunlight and the air temperature is warmer because it's later in the day. So their preference is starting you in the dark early in the morning because mm. your average channel swim is about 13, 14 hours, knowing that you'll finish at a more nicer time of day. Can you cast your mind back to the first time you did it? How do you remember that in your first crossing? Well, I was very green in that I'd never been to England before. I'd never done a very long marathon swim before. I had done training. And 
I had to use a boat captain I'd never met before. I'd booked him two years in advance on someone else's suggestion. So it was a lot of, uh, I'd taken advice along the way, but when you've never done something before, you're on a pretty steep learning curve. So the first crossing went okay, slower than I expected. It was 12 hours. And for many years, I never swam that slow again. And there is a reason behind that. So at the end of the 12 hours, because I attempted double crossing in my first swim of the English Channel, I got out, turned around, got back in. And then at about eight hours later in the second crossing, I'm heading back to England now, the weather turns, we get, we get Beaufort Force 4 and 5, which is turns into tw- 2 to 2.5 metre waves. It's now late at night. I'm now getting hypothermic and the boat captain loses me in the English Channel. So my memory of my first channel swim, which is actually lap two, is screaming at the boat captain, don't leave me behind, and I'm terrified because they're gone. They're off looking for a sandbar. They've got torches looking down at the water because they're worried about this hazard. And I'm terrified. And there's two to 2.5 metre waves, and it's dark, and there's a shipping lane, and a ship could just run me over. Or I could just float away and they never find me, which happens. There are people who've been lost by channel boats, and they wash up in Holland or Belgium two weeks later. It is a thing. So, yeah, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And I was like, this, this boat captain's shit. And so a few days later I regrouped and I booked with a different boat captain because they control the course. They control most elements. They don't control the weather or the swimmer, but most other elements, it's up to the skipper. And I booked with a different captain, the same captain that Susie Moroni, so your Aussie listeners, um, who are probably older than me, maybe in their 40s and 50s, may remember Susie Moroni. She did incredible things as a young person um, crossing the English Channel and it was it was her boat captain that I ended up booking with. And then from then on I used him for most of my other English Channel swims and they're very good. Um, so take me back then. The Chloe McArdle has gone. I've, I've never done a marathon swim before and... The English Channel is, as you said, is like the mecca of it. Why are you are you attempting <laughs> a, a return trip, which is essentially get to France, do a tumble turn, and and keep going back to England? Why, well, I've never done ultra marathons. I've never done a thirty kilometer. I've done ten hour training sessions, so ten hour swims. So where's the mindset though to go? I mean, I had experience. I just didn't have experience similar to the English Channel. Sure. So the mindset was. When I was considering swimming in the English Channel, I was swimming with a group of open water enthusiasts, just a small community group, they were lovely people. Most of them had swum the English Channel and they were not strong swimmers. They were not fast, they were not strong, they didn't have big backgrounds in open water swimming and I came from a very strong, as a junior, competitive swimming background. I was fast, I was fit, I was young and I thought if they can do one lap... I could do two. I was also training a lot. Like I was training as an elite athlete as well at that stage. It's not like I took it as a part-time thing. Sure. I rearranged my entire life so that I could prioritise training for this six days a week as my main focus. So I did throw everything at it. And at what stage in that career are you thinking, I want to, I want to have the most crossings of anyone? Or was that the goal from the start? Basically it was, oh, I'm so terrible at successfully swimming a triple crossing. I've now, by the time I ended up successfully swimming a triple crossing, I'd ended up with 13 crossings. And I thought, oh, well, I'm at 13. I'm nearly at the Australian record, which was 19. And then I'll, I should go for the Australian record now because I've just got this collection of swims. Mm. Close to the Australian record. But if I go for the Australian record, I'm halfway to the world record. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're it, so it's a backup plan of all right. my failures. Add my failures plus my successes together and it's it's a, it's 44. <laughs> it's like this bonus goal yeah. I never even envisioned. So talk to me about this the triple crossing, right? Tell me how hard that is. It's like inviting death into your mind and your bones and tackling the idea of sport and dying in one event. It's 102 kilometres. Do you spend any time on the shore recovering or is it literally turn around and go? There are quite a few rules in marathon swimming to keep rules consistent. Mm -hmm. You have your own sports official on there. Some of the rules are don't touch the boat. You can't get on the boat. There's no sleeping or resting on a boat, for example. One of the rules if you're attempting a multiple crossing is that you need to 
cross the waterline, yes, and you can, if you want, have up to 10 minutes on shore before you get back in for the next crossing. But I found out pretty quickly that you don't want to spend anywhere near 10 minutes because you stop exercising. We talked about that wind chill factor earlier. You're now completely exposed to the elements. It could be at night when the air temperature is even less. Mm. It's just much better to get back in straight away and keep swimming. And so your first attempt at the – at that stage, had someone done the four? No. No. So only three people in the world had done it, done the triple. Yes. Before you. No one from Australia. No one. And the first attempt, what happened? The first attempt was 2011. Mm-hmm. 60 minutes followed it. So 2011, I attempted the triple crossing and on lap two, I nearly died. They pulled me out with severe hypothermia. I didn't want to get out. I kept refusing I was like, no, I want to keep going. Later on, they said I was swimming with one arm and then I was swimming in circles. So when you have severe hypothermia, you don't know you have severe hypothermia. So I didn't know. I thought I was swimming fine. And they got me back on the boat and they took me straight to emergency. And the emergency doctor said to my crew that if you'd left her in there 30 minutes longer, she would have been dead. But I must say, if you're going to dive anything, hypothermia is a really nice way to go. You're not, <laughs> That's a sound you're not grab. in pain. You're That's not mentally stressed. Yeah. You're just swimming around in circles until you're swimming around the bottom of the ocean. That, Thank um, God, yeah, the crew were there because you need an independent person to make that decision for you. You that, can't just trust a swimmer that they will always be able to understand what their best interests are and act upon that. The bit, the 60-minute uh, episode on you with Charles Woolley, I'd recommend anyone watching that because to see you be pulled out of the water and obviously you're not necessarily all there consciously of what's going Definitely on. Definitely not. And to know that like a normal human internal body temperature is 37 degrees and you're under 30 and then going to ICU that night pumping water out of your lungs, like it's it's not nothing. And you're nonchalant about it. You're very casual about that idea. But in my mind, that would be enough to say the triple crossing is is, is too big a goal. So what drew you back to a, a second attempt? How long did it take from being discharged from ICU to when going, I oh, know we'll keep going and try this again? Well, in that 60 minutes segment... Charles Worley looks at me in hospital bed and goes, thank God it's all over and you're safe. You know, um, and then I go, I look at him and I'm like, oh, I'm glad I'm safe too. Now I can go back and reattempt it. And he's like, no, no, please don't. Within 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as soon as I was lucid and realised I was in ER, I didn't know I was in ER. Yeah, sure. Until I'd warmed up and my core temperature went back up. And I'm like, why am I here? Wasn't I swimming perfect strokes? In, yes. Yeah. Something's gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so straight away, probably, and as you said, it's probably not a bad, not a bad thing to, you know, you don't remember the pain or the discomfort or the hallucinations or anything in that state. So you, so yeah, so you're back into training and you're going, let's, let's do this. Yeah. I believed I could do it. And I think that's one of the things that became my strengths in my marathon swimming career is that I had a future identity and belief in myself that was so concrete. I believe. To achieve the three, you mean? Yeah, and even the double crossing. So year one I failed, but I believed I could do it. So in England, a few days after that second lap was a failure, I went and booked with a different captain. And in year two I did it. So when I have a goal that I really believe in, I just back myself and I don't act as if I'm trying to achieve that goal. In my mind, I know I can achieve the goal, so I backtrack and figure out, well, I can achieve it. I just need to put some things in place that I need to do, like structures or tick off boxes or whatever that is along the way. So, so many people talk about, oh, I'm trying to achieve a goal or I hope I can achieve this or blah, 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 blah. But for me, I don't know, my self-belief is so firm that it has happened. And so I'm not like doubting myself on the way. And if, the, if I fail, it's like, okay, it's just pure analysis. Something went wrong. It's up to me to figure out what went wrong. It's up to me to spearhead how to fix this. And then we just go again. So dying, nearly dying wasn't, I mean, yes, dying is bad, but 
For me, it just meant something was going wrong from a purely analytical point of view. I need to figure out what that is. I need to fix that. Just go again. So, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense for anyone else. No, I, In my brain, it makes sense. That's an incredible way of, of looking at achieving something big. And I want to know where that came from or what, what, where is that, where is that confidence in or that process where it's like, I want to, there is something that's ridiculously huge and where, where do you go to secure that in your mind to go the purpose, the drive to go, yeah, I've, I know that I can achieve that and I will achieve that. And then it's just a matter of process. Well, I'm not like that with everything in my life. I figured out, like any human, I've got strengths, I've got weaknesses. I can try and work on a few weaknesses. That, and for other, other things, it's not worth investing time. It's better to delegate someone else to do these things that I'm particularly weak at. Like I have a bookkeeper and an accountant, which may seem like a lot, but, you know, I delegate that stuff. Whereas other areas of my life, I see that I have strengths relative to, say, other people. And if I have some sort of evidence that I am excelling in those strengths, maybe those first few wins or successes along the way then gives me the confidence to lock in a big goal. So when I did my first marathon swim, I beat all the women and nearly all the men as well. So that gave me some self-confidence along the way. Um, I don't know. But again, if you think about marathon swimming... It's not highly competitive. There are not like thousands of people trying to be the queen of the English channel. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I play in that same pool of, you know, in the sport that I did. It was a small pool of athletes, but you have to think at some point, though, there's a reason why there's only a few people that do it because not everyone wants to or can mentally endure 10 to 15 hours worth of hard, hard work or. 30 or 40, 45 hours as the case is for you, right? And so I just find it so interesting as an approach where people have, you know, people would have a goal, as you said, and go towards it and they're trying to achieve something. Whereas you you reverse that, you reverse engineer that and go, well, I've already achieved it. Now how do I sort that process? And if there's a failure, then it's just a, it's just data, right? As you said, and it's just a, process to get there to get to the end goal it's just something that we have to get through do you find in whether it's swimming whether it's other things in life that if you don't have if if the goal isn't strong enough do you struggle when you fail no not really but there are things where I would like to be more motivated in and I end up not being motivated and then annoyed at myself that I didn't do that like there are times in the morning where I should have in my mind, gone to say swim training. This is post my career. I now have no English Channel swims lined up. So in, in my head in the morning, the alarm goes off. I'm like, oh, if I really want to get up in the morning, you know, that's self-talking. Hmm, I'll just go back to sleep. Yeah. So if the goal is not big enough, it doesn't excite me, mm. then I'm not the most motivated person in the world. I don't think I have any particularly unique ability to train constantly. I mean, I don't even swim much anymore. I was actually burnt out from swimming in 2010. There was one session where in my mind I was going to go and do like a four-hour swim at MSAC and I ended up falling asleep in my car because I was procrastinating. I didn't want to go. I was just – I was burnt out from training. So I don't have some innate obsession to swim a lot. Mm. I just had that innate obsession to hit some really big targets and then do what I had to do to get there. So how long between the first and the second attempt – for the th- three p- for the three way crossing, first attempt was two thousand eleven. Second attempt was two thousand and twelve. Then I got go? sick of it. Went off and did other things for a couple of years. How did how did the second attempt go? Same thing, but no hospitalization. Moderate, maybe not severe, but quite bad hypothermia. So, do you feel that set in early? Oh, as yeah, a, the cold. It's it's literally eating away at your bones. It's this constant messaging in your head, like I'm freezing. I want to get out in the boat because on the boat it's warm. It's a shower, but you've got warm drinks and you can rest and you can put a towel on. it's right there. So it's right. It's like in touching <laughs> it's three distance. Three metres away, yeah. Um, 
And I know no one will get annoyed at me if I failed. Like it's not like there's this external pressure that I need to achieve this for any sort of external validation, person or awards. There's no money in that sport, marathon swimming, by the way. So there's I'm not missing out on any prizes for getting out. Um, is that a battle during any of the attempts, I imagine, or is the battle between pulling the pin and just keep enduring it? Or knowing when to pull? I mean, I know in, in extreme circumstances you need your independent person in the boat to say pull her out but is there is there ever that when you're in the thick of it when you're in the challenge when you're in that uh that 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 really hard place are you battling between i just keep swimming versus we need to pull i need to get out there have been different situations um they're so different it's hard to say to generalize for example, when I attempted to swim between Cuba and America, which is 160 kilometres, there was swarms of box jellyfish coming up as soon as it was dusk because they feed on crustaceans and they, they're at the surface of the water at that particular time. So that's when they start rising. And I was getting injected with highly toxic venom all over the place. So hitting me from everywhere and I was telling the crew, you need to get me out. And they didn't realise it was box jellyfish because they were not supposed to be there that month of the year. And they're like, oh, keep going, you can do it. Like a lot of Americans on the boat, you know, super pumped up. Like, <laughs> yeah, you can do this. You got this. Keep swimming. So that's the only time my team have ignored me. Uh, they did pull me out eventually. Um, because being close to death doesn't scare me so much, I'm not... I'm not worried about that. It's not, it's not a fear sitting in the back of my head. In my mind, I'll just deal with whatever consequences. Um, that could be a part of being young and feeling invincible. Um, but uh, I've, I've, never ha I've never been in a situation where I'm like, I'm in a lot of pain or I'm a little cold, I want to get out, and then actually going out, actually getting out because I'm uncomfortable. I've never got out because I'm uncomfortable. I've only got out because I thought I might potentially die before I finish this lap. And that's not helping anyone. Mm. If I seriously thought that was going to be the issue. And that was the issue when I attempted the double crossing in 2012 because I was struggling to breathe. I'd already been feeling really cold inside for hours. And if I can't breathe, my oxygen concentration is low, I'm not going to finish that crossing because I was only three hours into that crossing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I might as well pull the pin now because... I'll end up pulling it at some point down the track. And the longer I leave it, the worse my physical condition is to come back and train for this again next year. So, so you've never pulled yourself out of because it's because it becomes challenging. What's the interior what's the internal dialogue when it does get challenging then? Uh, so there's like surface level psychological techniques like visualizing the successful finish. What does it look like, feel like, sound like, taste like? like just basically distracting my brain and then sending it off in a positive tangent, thinking of positive things that I'm grateful for, practising gratitude. I have my two little dogs that are like my children, think about how much I love them and appreciate them, all those sort of fun surface-level tactics. But then the extreme tactic when I know I'm really hypothermic, I just switch to counting strokes because then I don't. my brain has no capacity to, to squeeze other thoughts in because every second I'm counting another stroke. Mm. So I just block it out, dissociate. Um, but when I was younger, I experienced quite a lot of domestic violence. And I think that as a young person, to survive, I had to be able to just dissociate pain and not really sit in that space and let it bother me and let it get me down because I wouldn't have been able to function. And I think that's a part of that pain tolerance is maybe I'm not as highly sensitive to other people, to the effect of pain, because I kind of just take it as it is and just keep going. Talk to me about that experience with domestic violence. Um, so when I was quite young, I, I'm not going to talk about that specifically, uh, but when I was 16, my boyfriend locked me in his room and beat me with a stick and with his fist. And the only time I got out was when he was distracted momentarily um, to run out of that situation. And that was quite confronting. But even at that point in time, I wasn't disturbed by his behaviour because in a way, in the way subconscious, I'd been in uh, normalised to violence. So as a, as a child? Yeah. Yeah, it just became, I don't know, 
I'm like, oh, this is not a good thing. I shouldn't be here, but I wasn't absolutely terrified like I probably should have been. Um, so, sw- so swim training, just so flicking back a little bit just to swim training as a teenager, my first swim coach could not understand why I would just throw myself at stuff. Like she would set all these challenging butterfly swim sets and I'd be like, yep, give me more. She's like, you're not supposed to ask for more butterfly. I'm like 13 year olds don't demand to be given more butterfly. And then later on, another coach, she was like, why are you the only one who asked to reduce the rest between sets? Like, this is not normal. And I'm like, hmm. Um, So I think that ability, yeah, that may have been a skill that I got. So I turned my trauma into my strength and I use that as a platform because in marathon swimming, it's not about usually being the fastest. It's about about enduring the pain for that longer. And, yeah, I I somehow developed this skill set which became helpful later in life. And when you were 16 in that environment, how did you, how did you, did you talk to people at the time? Did you, how did you get out of that? Uh, well, I was quite young. I was in year 12. I was 16 and my mum took me to the doctor. My parents were quite disturbed at what had happened. Was it a period of time or was it just a one-off? It like, was a one-off event. Okay. My mum took me to the doctor and the doctor said, it's best you don't go to school for a week. So I had a bit of bruising on me. And I initially thought, oh, well, this must be because it's in my, this must be health reason. I need a week off when we were in the doctor's surgery. And he goes, it's best you do this because it will make other people feel uncomfortable if you go back to school. So just take a week off and then go back to school. And I didn't really think much of it at the time, but it was quite isolating. Like I was literally at home and he basically said it's... To make other people feel better. Yeah. There must be some sort of shame or there must be something wrong with you right now that you need to hide away from society and you need to not have the proper education you should be having in this year of your life for a week. Um, so it was... Yeah, that bit was very difficult. And actually my friends were a bit scared, um, I think, to hang out with me because, uh, I don't know, it was probably no one spoke to them about it. There just there wasn't a wraparound support around that situation that, Ideally, there would have been. So, yeah. That's in your final year of school. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. And then how have you, with that, how have you then moved on knowing that that trauma and presumably that your childhood trauma sits with you? How have you been able to manage? Well, initially after that, I'm just totally fine. So, I mean, school was challenging with my social group for year 12, but once I finished year 12, I was off at university, made lots of friends, doing well at uni, and then I got into triathlon at 19 and I had these big goals I set. I was, I was set. Um, and, yeah, during my marathon swimming career, I was in, ended up in a relationship. I didn't realise there was a lot of co- coercive control and that would entails a lot of controlling behaviours in my situation of me. So it could in other people's situations, be controlling of the victim in that relationship. Um, Things that were affecting me at the time was it's very unsettling for me, but I didn't know it was domestic violence. I'd never heard of the term coercive control. Give me an example. Uh, I was on the way, I was a swim coach at the time. I was on the way to manage some of my swimmers. This is with your then partner, right? Yeah, Yeah. my then partner, yeah. So I was in a position of responsibility for my swimmers. I was had to drive an hour away to get to the the beach I was heading to and my partner disconnected the phone. He rang Telstra and disconnected the network. So I had no GPS to go to where I was going. I couldn't make any phone calls and I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then later down the track I rang Telstra and they said, well, you're not on the account, you're not listed as an account holder so we can't reconnect this for you. And I was like, wow, there's this person has so much control over my life. Um, but uh, there were other things like, locking me out of my home constantly, especially at night time, so I had nowhere to sleep. Um, yeah, smashing things at my feet, disconnecting Wi-Fi when I had a work call, like targeting things that he knew would unsettle me, but it was extremely rare there was any physical violence at all. So I didn't realise it was... Um, a type of abuse. Yeah, just yeah. very different. Because I'd experienced physical abuse in the past... I, I thought these behaviours were not great, but I didn't think they were that severe. Yeah. Uh, and I've tried to turn that into a positive thing. So I started advocating about for domestic violence 
victims and the situation that they were in during COVID because I heard rates of domestic violence were going up. I heard the government saying the safest place for everyone to be is at home. And then I thought, gee, that's really naive. Have you really thought about the complexities of what you're saying here for some people in society? And so when I was going after the men's record at that time, well, it still is 34 crossings for a man. I just wanted to Certainly support it. 44. <laughs> <laughs> Much lower than 44. Yeah. And I went to the UK and they were very receptive, the media, about, about talking about COVID and lockdowns and domestic violence rates. They were quite progressive in having that national conversation and Australia at that time did not want to have a conversation about DV rates going up mm. in COVID because they were getting the same media releases in Australia. But that was not what they wanted to talk about in interviews, yeah, yeah. which was, you know, which was fine. There was that opportunity there, but the belief was there wasn't the appetite for full readers and consumers of the media. Um a wonderful opportunity. That's where that, it started. Yeah, wonderful opportunity at that point, given that COVID was there, the DV's rate was increasing, and you were just at the same time surpassing the men's record mm. of crossings. Which people assumed was the world record. I never said the men's record was a world record. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's quite, that's quite interesting in and of itself. Yes, the, the, the presumption. <laughs> it was just a pure presumption. Yeah, that the men had to hold the record of the number of crossings. Mm. Um. But you've gone a step further, right? You've now established your own foundation. Yes. It, it all kind of happened by accident. So when I started talking publicly about my lived experience as a DV survivor, um, that kind of word was getting out there in the media, in my community, my personal community, and a sergeant who runs the crime prevention unit in Mackay in regional Queensland, he'd seen me talk at a corporate event and school event previously at I just happened to end up in, in his area of the world. And then he said to me, our DV rates are really high and I've got some funding to run a program to address this. Would you consider coming up and marrying your keynote speaking with your DV advocacy? Come in and speak to schools. I will organise everything. You know, just if you're happy to get on the plane and you're happy to do this, we'll do two schools a day, we'll do media interviews and we'll do it all within four days. What do you reckon? And I was like, yep, yeah, let's do it. Um, we ran that in 2022. It was very successful. We ran it in 2023. That was very successful. And I've now put in an application for two different grants to go back up to that same area, to two different regions this year to do more of that. Um, but to really progress that work, I need more of a structure and a framework around that. And that's what led to the creation of the Channel Queen Foundation. And this foundation is for the prevention of domestic violence because... At the end of the day, it's great to be able to support people who are, who are going through or have gone through domestic violence situations and also to address the perpetrator behaviour and work with that cohort. But if you're not addressing what the drivers of domestic violence or intervening early when people are young to change attitudes because we know that uh, gender inequality is the one of the drivers for domestic violence, so if we don't do that, then we're still going to have the problems later on. We can't just be focusing on the end result of what is happening. We need to stop it in its tracks and prevent it from reoccurring. So that is the kind of niche that we're looking at. There's a lot of great work in the DV community, counsellors, crisis accommodation and all that, and I'm very supportive of that work. It's necessary, but it's also really important to get in and intervene with our young people because they are experiencing a lot. A lot of them are experiencing domestic violence right now. A lot of them are perpetrating domestic violence and we don't want them to then go on in further relationships and continue this cycle and to potentially continue intergenerational trauma. For example, the young people in their family of origin, the family that have supported them up until they're 18, if they've experienced domestic violence, then they're highly likely to either be a victim or a perpetrator later in life. So, yeah, that early intervention. Circuit breaker. Is, yeah, yeah. The, the point is to be a circuit breaker or just prevent it from ever happening in their lives. Um, and that's that's where we're going. And we're having great success already. It's just going to take a lot to kind of get this going on a grander scale. That's incredible. That's, a, that's truly remarkable, Chloe. And to be able to use your platforms and influence to raise awareness, raise funding, make a difference in such a really important area it must give you a lot of a very similar fulfillment of going after the channel crossings to doing this sort of work yeah i mean they're, they're very different things um but it, it's funny how quickly i've forgotten about channel swimming <laughs> it's yeah. just like a chapter of my past 
when the when the purpose is redefined, right? Yeah, I have a completely new purpose. Yeah, and that's it's really fulfilling. My new purpose, so good, right? Yeah, and that's part of it to go. I think you talk to a lot of professional athletes that retire and they struggle Mm. because they don't have the purpose, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't need to now find to to go to the Bass Strait and go how many times can we cross that and just up the ante. It's just trying to find something that gives you as much sense of purpose going forward. So take me back then for the final, your attempt, your third attempt at three-way crossing. Mm -hmm. That was your third attempt, yeah, that you successfully were able to do it. So I figured out I had two failed attempts and neither were even close. Like I wasn't really a good contender of finishing the third lap. Had you gone on the third lap? No. For um, either of them. The second year I attempted at 2012, I had got into the third lap. Okay. Yeah. Just. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, severe hypothermia. What is going wrong? I can't eat anything more to keep me warmer. There's a limit on how much one can drink in any one hour and I'm already having warm drinks. I need to be warmer. If I swim any faster, I'm going to burn so much energy that You're not going to be I'm actually going to get colder because I'm going to be running so low on energy. Mm-hmm. I can't swim faster. Getting physically strong is not going to help prevent hypothermia because muscle, extra muscle is just weight and it's not keeping you warm. Wool fat, which is that white sticky substance you see on marathon swimmers, that doesn't actually keep you warm, doesn't keep the cold out. Really, the only option I have is to get fatter, to get more subcutaneous fat around my internal organs and act like a barrier. It's not going to prevent hypothermia, but it may slow the onset and just buy me more time. Mm. I just needed an extra, say, five hours. So I used to train so much in time, intensity, and also in cold water because your energy, your body burns so much energy in cold water because it has to keep your body core temperature up yep. whilst you're also exercising. Mm-hmm. So I used to be between 67 and 72 kilograms when I was attempting, say, a double crossing in the English Channel and all that. And I just I just wasn't fat enough. So I realized I wasn't fat enough. I jumped from 2012, I was 67 kilos when I attempted the triple crossing. I was unsuccessful. And then I jumped up to 81 kilos by 2015, the year I was successful. And that extra blubber, that layer of fat, that was it. I did. It, I never needed to train more. I did, my crew was fine. Like they were sorted. They were doing a great job. Yep. And that was the missing piece. And I finally just slotted that missing piece in. Yeah, it all comes down to pizza Diet. and hot chips. Like Diet. who would have known? <laughs> I was failing because of my uh, lack of addiction to pizza and hot, hot chips. chips. Was it <laughs> night and day, that experience between the two, between the three, carrying that extra weight? Um, I was still very, very hypothermic. I just don't know how much. Um, I was hallucinating towards the end of that third crossing, but not super bad. Um, yeah, it was yeah, pure exhaustion. There were, people think that you do a channel swim and, you, you know, there's this huge elation and, you, you know, you, you stand there and you cheer and, the, you know, all this, like, I'm like, no, 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 you're just so exhausted. All you want to do is fall over and sleep. Mm. <laughs> it's just not a normal event. Let's do a party tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I just need two to days sleep. and give we'll me, go party. Give me, give me 12 hours to have a rest. Yeah. Um, this has been fantastic. And I'm so, uh, I'm in awe of you and this the pivot you've been able to do to be in line with your values and to be in line with your purpose in this foundation. What's the purpose? What's the... Where are we headed with that? What would you like to see with the foundation? I would like within the next few years a foundation to grow so that we can intervene in well, as many secondary schools as possible because it's aimed at year 9 to 12 yeah. to run these presentations. It would take more than me. Right now it's just me, which is great for where we're at. But to grow it, we need more people. Ideally more people with lived experience so that young people and not getting just some random theory lesson and they can see the real impact it has on people within their community. Um, but also I just want to mention, I'm not sure who was listening right now, um, but I just come from a conference about strangulation, which is happening in a lot of domestic violence relationships. And I've, I've become aware that it's a very high predicator for future homicide. So if anyone out there is experiencing someone strangling you, in your relationship, 
that, that you should just keep in mind this is a very huge red flag for you or if you have someone that you know in your family friendship group that you think may be in a DV relationship, um, maybe you want to ask them questions to see if they're experiencing this. It's, it's a huge concern right now that we're seeing in research. And also for those in sexual relationships, if there's what people call choking, which is actually strangulation going on, they're also at a very high chance of um, immediate and health, ongoing health issues Besides dying, which is a potential, um, it may lead to months or years down the track, issues of stroke, migraines, um, memory loss, being unable to work so that this activity, which for some people they think is easily managed or safe, is actually um, a very concerning, it has very concerning health outcomes for a lot of people, including potential death. So I think that's also a new area that's going to come out with this foundation is running um, if schools are up for it and the parents, these kids are up for it, having information sessions about this because oh. even in young people who are consuming a lot of their um, knowledge about sexual relations from the internet, from porn specifically, yeah. where this is something that is very frequently shown in pornographic material, that it is not safe. Um, and these are the potential outcomes that can happen to them or anyone that they're with when they engage in this. So, yeah, super concerning research coming out about strangulation and that's probably the next messaging that we're, that I'm going to aim to be getting out there. But certainly going forward is hitting more schools. Yes. Getting in front of more kids and hope that you can provide that, that strength or that inspiration for them to be circuit breakers, right? Exactly. And starting off with the whole swimming story to, to hook them in initially mm. because a lot of kids, they identify with sports, something that they do, something they're interested in. That's where I start with. And then I'm like, oh, by the way, what's other stuff? <laughs> yeah. Let, let me, let's talk about let's, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, this has been incredible, Chloe, and I really appreciate your time. Um, before you go, we do have uh, five questions that we ask every guest. Okay. And I'll throw them to you. The number one tip you would give someone looking to be more successful in their life? Have the confidence that you can achieve what you really want, but you may not yet believe that you can so doing what more you... self-belief and maybe that means more small wins in the direction that you're hoping to go to help develop that, that self-belief yeah. to get the feedback that you need to be certain mm. to commit to that goal of what you're what so you really do ideally like for yourself a small feedback loop of successes as yeah. you go you're towards train that your direction. brain that it's okay it's safe that to keep going in this direction yeah I like what you said earlier though about when you've locked in that that goal, where you're headed, that any failure in inverted commas along the way is just more data, is more feedback loop to yes. go and achieve that. So, like, is the is the it's just problem solving. Yeah, and it makes the war story ba better later. Mm. Like, if you swim in the English Channel, there are some days where it's beautiful and calm. It's warm, sunny. If you swim on that day, you do not have an amazing war story. <laughs> yeah, I just did it. Right? it if you swim on a horrible day, you can tell people about the waves and the cold. You can show them the photos. So, yeah, you know, if you fail once or twice, you've got a great war story. Well, but it's all. But to that point, it's almost like the the sacrifice creates the value, right? If you the in, if you endure a lot more along the way. It's more satisfying exactly, right. Hey, we should all fail more often. Yeah, 100%. Think of all the benefits. And absolutely. Um, number one tip for someone looking to be more happy in their life? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm not the person to speak about <laughs> happiness. But I must say I have two little chihuahuas and they're my, my most sweetest companions. So for me, I know that equals happiness, but I know that's not the same for everyone. Hmm. Definitely no. not an expert on happiness. <laughs> <laughs> The number one book that you would gift or recommend someone to read? I don't have an answer for that, but I'm currently reading Consent Laid Bare by Chantelle Contos, who some of you may know is a, sorry, a campaigner for the Teach Us Consent movement to get consent education in secondary schools, mm -hmm. which I think is brilliant. So I'm reading that and she I'm halfway through. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because that's also a huge topic in itself, right? Oh. Yes, maybe one day we'll unpack that. Mm. Um, the most influential person in your life? There's no one person, but I I draw inspiration from all different places and at least in the DV space when a young person who I've never met before comes up to me at the end of presentation and feels like they need to tell me their life story 
and I know that I've helped them just by being there that day and they feel safe enough to come up and just disclose that to me, then that that inspires me to keep going. Mm. So That must be so powerful. Yes, but and but also concerning that they feel that I'm the person to speak to, not a parent or a friend or their counsellor. So one of the messages we have is to find that trusting person in your life. Yeah. And <clears throat> and I think if you are a parent, then you'd hope that your kids would come to you if they've got a problem, but that may never be the case. But at least try and encourage other adults in their life to have a great relationship with your young person or young people so that they feel safe maybe going to others. It must fuel you with these presentations at schools when you hear about that circumstances where people come up to you and say, this, thank you so much, it's impactful and here's my story. But it also must be really confronting to see how prevalent it is. It is confronting. In children, right? Well, sometimes the children will leave a presentation and they're distressed. You know, seeing a young person leave in tears, it's like, am I doing the right thing right now? Because they're really stressed. Yeah, so although most of the time you think you're doing good, you know, it's just it's not – it is still hard and we still need to reflect that we're working with young people and we're talking about traumatic topics and we don't know what their lived experiences are. Um, in, in an area of the world currently where we're doing this work that is known for having high levels of domestic violence. So it is good. It's, it's, also, it's also challenging in many ways, yeah. Um, and finally, a guest, famous or not, that you think we should have on the show? Elena Dokic. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've got a bias towards talking about sport and DV-related stuff. So she had a very difficult time with her dad who was abusive. Most of your listeners probably know about that story. Uh, and yet she's achieved so much and she's a keynote speaker. She, As far as I know, she's very good at presenting a story, she's written a book. Just finished a book, yeah. Yeah, so um, if I were in your position, I'd be hitting her up. (laughs) And then Australian Open's finished now, so she's probably got maybe more free time on her hands. Chloe McArdle, thank you so much for coming on. It's been one of my favourites and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me and helping me share my messaging. That was another episode of the Success Times Happiness podcast. This weekend, I am heading to a open house. So if you do see any real estate agents, please let them know about the show. It means a lot. Until next time, peace.